you really need to remember that as you're extubating the patient, that you're actually taking a level of ionotropic support away from them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Grit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you mind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Grit Podcast? Absolutely. Pete's Grit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield podcast episodes on core PICU topics. So, Zach, who are we talking with today? So we're excited to have Dr. Gina Patel and Dr. Alyssa Stoner back with us on the show. You'll remember that Dr. Stoner is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine and practicing pediatric intensivist at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Yes, and Dr. Gina Patel is a third-year critical care fellow at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. Next year, she'll be a cardiology fellow at Nemers in Delaware, and we look forward to working with her in a CICU near us soon. Very good. This is part three of our series on extubation readiness. Let's jump right into our conversation about this core PICU topic. So let's talk about the other thing in the thorax. Let's talk about our cardiovascular assessment. Uh, yes, that's Gina's favorite thing. So, Gina the cardiologist. Yeah, Gina the cardiologist. So we need to remember what our intrathoracic dynamic is. So I like to kind of remind everybody that we need to remember what happens to the left side of the heart when you intubate. So Gina, do you want to walk us through a little bit of the cardiopulmonary interactions and what happens when you intubate? intubate neuron positive pressure, because then that will help us kind of get to what happens when you take that away. Yeah. So whenever you introduce positive pressure ventilation, you are altering the transmural pressure of your LV, and that ultimately decreases your afterload and allows your LV to eject and improve the stroke volume coming out of your LV. Yeah. So when you're intubated with positive pressure, it really does help the left side of your heart. Some can argue that it also impairs the right side of your heart. And so perhaps the effect is not combined. It's really not that great. But if you were to have somebody who has impaired LV function, like we're seeing now with our kids who um, have missed C and get intubated for those reasons, you really need to remember that as you're extubating the patient, that you're actually taking a level of ionotropic support away from them. And so you want to make sure that their cardiac function is intact. And so I've really seen in the last couple of of months that I've been in the unit, we've had a, a handful of these kids who come in with Miss C and they have pretty diminished LV function and end up getting intubated um, for that reason. And so we want to really assess that that has improved. And so oftentimes when these kids are on their spontaneous breathing trial, I will be watching their nears and I will also grab a venous blood gas so I can look at their venous saturation and make sure that it is trending where it had been previously on their level of support and then evaluating their end T-proBMP, their cardiac markers, and making sure that we think that their LV dysfunction has improved. It doesn't have to be completely resolved, but that it's perhaps improved in that when I take the breathing tube out, taking that level of support away from their heart isn't going to be impactful. So these are the kids that I actually will get a post-extubation gas on, and I don't necessarily get an arterial gas. I'm getting a venous gas, and I'm going to get a lactate with it because I want to make sure that when I took the breathing tube out, I didn't impact their cardiac function enough to put them over into anaerobic metabolism. 
And this kind of patient just takes me back to the CVICU. Every time we're getting ready to extubate, you're, everyone's looking at the nears, they're watching, they want to know what the lactate is. And of course, the venous sat. And I would imagine that you don't have a PA catheters in your patient, so you're probably not getting a mixed venous nope. uh, saturation. Oh, but you want to know if it's a true mixed venous sat. Is it yeah. really a real one? Um, but I imagine you, you probably prefer that sample coming from a, like a central venous catheter. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be a central venous catheter that we're getting a gas uh, off of. I don't even look at them if they come from a PIV because it's not worth my while. <clears throat> but understanding that it's really the trend of the venous saturation and not the true number, right? Because we don't have a true mixed venous sat because we don't have PA catheters in these kids. But yeah, definitely helpful information. And I will tell you, one of the Missy kids that I had recently, I like fed him lunch and he like dropped his nears. He bumped his lactate. And I was like, I thought you were better, man. Come on. What is this? And so I, it really can impact them. And so just kind of being cognizant of where you're at. It's so fascinating when patients display physiology right for us at the bedside. Yes. So perfusing his gut and all of a sudden he, he lost all of his oxygen uh, reserve. Yeah. A question for you, Gita. If I'm extubating a patient to BiPAP for pulmonary disease, that does not feel like a win. It feels like maybe we did it too early, but it, I've seen kids in heart failure where we extubate them to BiPAP for LV afterload reduction, and that feels better. Is that your experience as well? It feels fine either way. I mean, if I don't think of it as a loss whenever we're extubating a pulmonary kid to non-invasive, we're just supporting them. They're just a gradual transition. So it's just going to take them time. So if they've been intubated for a longer period of time, they might not be able to just go from positive pressure to spontaneously breathing, even though they have their own respiratory drive intact and they're pulling great tidal volumes and their compliance is pretty decent. They might still need that positive pressure. So I don't necessarily take that as a negative, but I do watch those kids a lot closer because they're at a higher risk of backsliding and potentially needing to be reintubated. Now, for the cardiac side, yes, I think it's the same concept of easing the transition for the LV. And so if they were in heart failure and you know their function has slightly improved, but we're ready to extubate, I would probably have a very low threshold throwing them on non-invasive just to help that transition from going to positive pressure to negative pressure and or just trying to alleviate the work uh, for the LV, if that makes a little bit more sense. So still, still a win. <laughs> The other thing that I might add in that context too is I tend to be proactive instead of reactive when I think about some of our chronic patients. And so I may extubate our chronic patients to their home BiPAP settings to prevent atelectasis from occurring because I have found that once you redevelop that level of atelectasis in some of these more hypotonic, weaker kids, it's hard to kind of recover from, um, particularly in that peri-extubation phase. And so then it buys them another breathing tube to get them clean out and it's just kind of annoying. And so I may be a little preemptive and be like, hey, can we extubate them to BiPAP, make sure that everything stays open, and then kind of liberate them from their BiPAP during the daytime and then get them back on their regular schedule of doing nocturnal non-invasive. So... Sounds good. Yeah. Should we keep moving forward? Yeah. So moving on from the thoracic cavity, you have your stomach to think about, and this easily goes missed. So, you know, I've walked in numerous times when I've been like, all right, this kid's ready to extubate. Let's do these things. And then the nurse goes, oh, do you want to hold their feeds? They're being fed gastrically. And I'm like, 
Okay. Why don't you hold the feeds? I'll come back in a few hours. Um, And so just remembering that you want to make sure that if you were needing to put the breathing tube back in, you are going to have an optimal environment for that. In that particular setting, making sure that the patient is NPO for an appropriate period of time. So if they're being gastrically fed, I use kind of our standard NPO time frame of like four to six hours, depending on what they're being fed. You know, and if it's breast milk, then great, even less. So two hours. If they have a transpyloric feeding tube in, I don't make them NPO for an extended period of time. I actually just have them pause their feeds surrounding the time of extubation. So if we pull the breathing tube out and the transpyloric tube accidentally migrates with it, we're not filling their stomach up with feeds in that peri-extubation phase. The caveat to that is perhaps when you're on the cardiac side and you have a single ventricle patient, right? Because feeding a single ventricle patient can alter their cardiac output. And so for those patients, even if their tube is transpyloric, I will hold their feeds about four hours prior to extubating, just so I know that we're not stressing their cardiac function as we take a level of cardiac support away. The other piece that kind of comes into play is these kids who have TBIs. And so just kind of remembering that they may be at a higher risk for aspiration and understanding that their posterior pharyngeal tone is going to be different than it was before they got intubated and before they had this injury. And so just kind of recalling like, oh yeah, they might be at higher risk for aspirating kind of in this immediate time frame and being cognizant of that. Gina, do you have anything else to add to that piece? No, I just have PTSD of the good Dr. Jenna Miller constantly asking me if I vented the G-tube. So especially when I'm intubating a patient, like I've done everything and then, and I'm signing out to her and she's like, did you vent the G-tube? And that's like the one thing I haven't done. So I think I reversed it in my head. So when I'm extubating, she's on service right now. So last night I made sure everyone was NPO who was extubatable. So it is, uh, I can do it in my sleep at this point, but no, I, I agree with everything that you said. Yeah. The last piece that I might consider when getting ready to extubate, is this kid going to need a procedure in the immediate peri-extubation phase, um, right? Because that's going to be like their highest risk time frame. And so if they're going to need to go down and get a sedated MRI or they need to do some other magical thing in the unit, I may wait until they've completed that procedure until I actually move forward with extubating them. That makes sense. And the procedure is always an MRI, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's always an MRI, inevitably. All right. So I think this is a good time to like go back and think about like our case and think about our patient and kind of like use the information we just learned and apply it to our patient. So Gina, take it away. All right. So using your approach of going head to toe, which is generally what I do as well prior to extubation. So our patient is a toddler. It seems like she was developmentally normal for her age prior to being intubated. And so I'm just looking to see if she's returned back to those same milestones, able to follow commands, doing certain things, like is she reaching for her security blanket, sippy cup, et cetera, like we talked about. And so the second thing I'm looking at is neurosedative infusions. We talked about like the five to six day 
mark as, you know, maybe considering that marker as a, should we start some methadone or Ativan or clonidine? So I'm going to look at her drips. Our scenario doesn't really give specifics other than that she's been on these nurse sedatives for 12 days. So going through my checklist of how many boluses has she had, where are nurse sedatives, have we started any long-acting nurse sedatives in the background like methadone, clonidine, and has she had multiple doses of that? And, and I'll then- fill you in. So she did not have anything started and they just turned everything off and estimated. <laughs> 12 days. Nice. Okay. It's going to be a wild ride here. Yes. And so with that information, maybe just still proceeding forward with extubating the patient, but also being cognizant that it's going to be a journey taking care of her the remainder of your shift um, and really being cognizant of her watching out for withdrawal <laughs> symptoms and how are you going to deal with that with her natural airway if you extubate her. So from a neuro standpoint, I think that's really what I would look for in this patient. And then I don't suspect her to have any poor or pharyngeal tone. And I expect her cough and her gag to be intact. And it was. It was. Yeah. What about her lungs? Yeah. So her upper airway and going down into her lungs. So once again, it depends on what she required in terms of, does she require multiple intubations? It doesn't seem like it based on the scenario. And then she seemed to have a cuff leak at a low pressure. So I don't suspect to have any issues in terms of post-extubation, upper airway obstruction, post-extubation. And then her lungs, once again, she seemed to be intubated from a renal failure causing fluid overload and pulmonary edema. And so I would make sure, was she on dialysis? How do we get this fluid off of her? What is her current fluid balance going into the extubation? So if we did dialysis, got all this fluid off, and then she's been off of dialysis for 24 hours, I'm just kind of making up a scenario. What is her fluid status? Uh, looking at her eyes and nose closely, because Alice had mentioned, you know, is this going to potentially cause reaccumulation of fluid and potentially be causing the same problem that we had uh, 12 days ago when the patient was intubated? So that's what I would look for. I'll just tell you that actually her fluid status was great. Her PD catheter, I think she got like a couple of days of CRT and then was able to transition back to her PD catheter. It was working fantastic. She was tolerating her fills and dwells without a problem. Her lung compliance looked fantastic. She did well on our pressure support trial in that early morning hours, and it didn't really seem like she had any further evidence of pulmonary edema on her chest x-ray. So really seemed like she was moving in the right direction from that standpoint. Yeah, perfect. As long as I know I have a way to keep that fluid off of her, that's really what matters the most to me in this situation. And then going down to her heart, it seemed like she was hemodynamically fine. So I don't anticipate her having any issues with her cardiopulmonary interactions with extubation. And then the other thing is, you know, like we've talked about this, is if, if I've deemed her to be a critical airway based on my physical exam, then should I uh, reach out to my ENT and anesthesia colleagues if I need assistance with the extubation? Generally, we tend to still extubate the patient, but just keeping that in the back of your mind because that's another tool in, in our toolbox. For sure. And we'll be sure to include the, the stick figure that you mentioned that the good Dr. Miller uh, showing the head to toe assessment for the pre-extubation readiness checklist there. Yeah, it's a really state of the art drawing, but. <laughs> hey, this is, I see this on the doors all the time in the PICU. It is fantastic. It does its job. And that is, that is about the level of my artistic abilities as well. 
I draw it all the time and I make sure I copyright Jenna Miller onto it. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about like what you do to extubate her. So, okay, we decided based on our information that she like seems like she might be okay, but neurosedatives might be a little bit shaky. So we extubate her. How do you do that? How do you get the room set up? What do you decide to do? What do you tell the people in the room to worry about? What do you do? Yeah, so I'm kind of a weirdo when I go in and to excavate patients because I don't think everyone uses the same mental model. Maybe we all do. But I use the same checklist that I use to intubate a patient. So I use soap me mnemonic every time I go back into the room. So I want my suction set up whether it's a yonker, whether it's a, you know, like a small suction, depending on the size of the patient. And I make sure that they suction both the ET tube and the mouth. You really want to make sure you suction the mouth. Everyone's really good about suctioning the ET tube because yeah, we're about to take it out. So one good suction from deep down in the lungs is great. But what people forget is that oral secretions can cause laryngospasms after you extubate a patient. So you really want to make sure you really suction out the mouth and the posterior oropharynx really nicely. And then going down to oxygen, there always needs to be a discussion about what you're going to extubate the patient to. So are you going to extubate the patient to non-invasive? Are you going to extubate the patient to high-flow nasal cannula, nasal cannula room air, so your RT and your bedside staff can be prepared and have that ready to go? And what's your backup option if that first option fails? So just being prepared and having that discussion. And then airway, I always make sure, I know I just talked about what I'm going to extubate to, but the other thing is making sure I know what size tube that is currently in the patient. So I say it out loud. So if I have to emergently re-intubate the patient, I know what equipment to have in a size one size smaller in case there is some upper airway edema that may force me to use a smaller ET tube. Then I go into personnel, making sure my RTs are there, making sure my bedside staff is there, and everyone's around me. Medications, once again, looking back at neurosedatives, uh, making sure that sedatives are either turned off or we followed our, the appropriate outline plan that we had decided on rounds, and then any other equipment or anything. So I just kind of go through that checklist so that I don't miss anything and ward off any bad juju. Hey, I'm Ciara Minova, a graduate student of psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College London, and I'm so excited to share with you my new podcast, which is called Behind the Stigma. Every other week, I will be mainly talking to the podcast clinical psychologists, clinicians, researchers, educators in the field, you name it, basically people that I find so inspiring and that will help us understand the latest research, concepts, but also complexities and controversies surrounding mental health. These are going to be some great discussions and a peek into the fascinating world of psychology, neuroscience, and psychiatry. The one thing that I might add there for um, M is your monitors, too. Oh, yes. Um, and so making sure that you have your pulse ox and your blood pressure cuff on if you don't have an art line and that they're not on the same extremity because that oftentimes happens, too. And I'll tell you the reason for this is really because I've had a couple of experiences where I pulled the breathing tube and the kid arrested. And in that particular setting, it was due to upper airway obstruction, but more in the form of a granuloma. And so, you know, like my experience was like, 
like, yeah, I totally got this. This this kid should fly. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. And then didn't have the blood pressure cuff on, didn't have the things on that needed to happen. And so was like struggling in the setting of like extremis to get the blood pressure cuff on. And so just making sure that those things are on. So I often will make sure that the monitors are on. If I'm in the room by myself and I don't have a fellow and I have other things going on, I'll have them turn the beeps on so I can pay attention to the patient and I'm not staring at the monitor. And then I will make sure that I pre-oxygenate. And so you said oxygen interface. Great. Perfect. But I will often walk into the room and turn the ventilator up to 100% to fill up their FRC. So when we do pull the breathing tube, you know, some kids like to do their breath holding and screaming. At least we give them a little bit of buffer. And so make sure that their FRC is nice and filled. Go ahead. Yeah. So just a plug here, just to listen back to the Intubation Essentials series of episodes that you did with us to to help make sure you have everything in your checklist filled out for those uh, reintubation if needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just to quickly kind of reiterate, you're going to pre-oxygenate, suction, take the tube out, put them on the appropriate interface, and then reassess. So you reassess their work of breathing and their oxygen saturations. Are they moving air? Are they stridulous? And then you decide, am I going to give the racemic epi? Am I not going to give the racemic epi? Do they need to do that? And this is kind of where I talk about the reassessment of your patient later on. So I always talk to the resident and or the sub-I that's with me. Okay, we've extubated your patient. In an hour or two, I want you to come back by, reassess your patient. Are they still doing okay? Have they had an increase in their oxygen requirement? Did they have, you know, copious secretions to develop, um, those kinds of things. And I don't always get a post-extubation chest x-ray or a blood gas. Majority of the time, I would say that I don't. Um, There are certain instances that I will. If I'm worried about the kid redeveloping atelectasis because they're weak, I'll get an afternoon chest x-ray several hours later. Then I can determine if I need to change my strategies. Do they need more non-invasive support? Those kinds of things. And then I don't always get a blood gas. The times that I get blood gases are really in the cardiac patients that we kind of already discussed, or if I have a concern about hypercarbia and I'm worried that they're going to like redevelop that. And that's kind of where I kind of do my reassessment. I don't know, Gina, if you have any other pearls that you've come across during your fellowship that you kind of follow. No, I think you make a great point about reassessment. And that's the biggest key is, you know, not just walking away and be like, oh, everything's fine. They didn't develop any strider. I'm good. This is a home run. We're good to go because they can quickly change on you. Um, And so I think reassessing the patient. And then I usually tend to wait about an hour to get a blood gas. And then I usually don't restart feeds uh, once again for like about four to six hours after. Sometimes I'll do it a little bit quicker than that if I'm really reassured, but I generally like to give myself some room for the patient to prove themselves to me. Sure. I think that's all really practical advice, especially holding off on the feeds until you're sure that they're going to be okay extubated. So we talked a lot about preparing for extubation, the process of getting the tube out. Now to kind of shift gears and talk about what we're always most preoccupied and worried about, extubation failure. It's definitely a high-risk scenario in the PICU. But you just get to start us. Tell us what we should think about. What should we expect for extubation failure patients? Yeah. So when I was a fellow, I had one of my attendings tell me like, oh, one out of three kids you extubate should fail. And I was like, that seems like such a high number. Like, that's crazy. And so then I did a little bit of digging into the research. And I think at that point in time, the literature that I found, the numbers kind of ranged between like 5 and 14% 
for extubation failure rate, but most often the reason why pediatric patients get reintubated is because of upper airway obstruction. It's about 40% of the cases. And when we talk about extubation failure, it's really within that 48-hour window, but some people in some of the literature will report out to a 72-hour window of failure rate, but to be consistent, just kind of within that 48 hours. And so when I talk to families about getting ready to extubate, I do try to give them a heads up of, you know, some kids don't do well and some kids do need the breathing tube back in. um, And the highest um, incidence and the highest risk is going to be in that peri-extubation phase. And the further we get out from it, the higher likelihood that we have to be successful. And I think giving the parents kind of a heads up at least helps them with their expectations. So if like in an hour we have to reintubate the patient, they're not like, oh my God, you told me this could never happen. Like what's happening? At least they've kind of have that kind of mental framework to work with. Other causes for extubation failure um, is really inability to manage airway secretions, which I've seen many, many times, particularly with our traumatic brain injury kids, diaphragmatic weakness. So these are the kids that are just weak from being intubated for a long period of time. Inability to oxygenate without positive pressure. So the ongoing lung disease that hasn't fully recovered or hypercapnia. Some risk factors that are associated with extubation failure are young age, so less than 24 months of age. If they have underlying conditions, so either uh, chromosomal or genetic issue, chronic respiratory disorder, or if they have chronic neurologic disorders, and then any need to replace the endotracheal tube um, on admission. So I thought that was an interesting statement because, um, you know, there are some times that kids get intubated with an uncuffed tube and we're like, well, we can't ventilate, so we're going to have to change that tube out. Or there's like that inadvertent extubation that has happened that needs to get reintubated urgently um, that happens. So you can imagine that there's some trauma to the airway. If the patient has an OI greater than five, so right, that's going to go back. They still have underlying lung disease that really hasn't recovered if they've had an increased use of sedation or a need for rhinotropes. And so this is where I like to kind of go back to that case scenario because there are some risk factors in our patient scenario, right? So she was less than 24 months of age. Um, She had increased use of sedation. And I think she briefly was ionotropes during her course, but that was more related to her CRT needs. But when I got to bedside to go check on this little peanut, she was not doing well. So she was agitated. She had lots of striders. She had lots of work of breathing with subcostal intercostals and supraclavicular retractions. I did get her some racemic epi and she got a little bit better and she had like improvement of her strider, but she was still like super agitated um, and she continued to have increasing oxygen requirements. So she had gone from like just being on blow by to nasal cannula. We tried high flow for a little bit to see if that helped and it really, really didn't. So ultimately she got reintubated. And when we looked at her airway, she really had pretty significant vocal cord edema. And then as soon as we put the breathing tube in, she had really large preponderance of frothy pink secretion. So really had evidence of kind of this kind of flash pulmonary edema. And I really do think that it was post-obstructive in nature. So she was able to be extubated pretty quickly thereafter, so made some adjustments to her neuromedications, made for a little bit of a smoother transition, and we were able to get her extubated in the next couple of days, and she did fantastic. So really not the end of the world for this young lady, um, but just a great illustration of some risk factors that play into kind of that extubation failure rate. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion of a really practical and common scenario that we find ourselves in the PICU all the time. When I'm thinking about my take-home points from our conversation, 
I want to remember that head-to-toe assessment of the patient when I'm preparing to extubate. And that plan to extubate, that needs to start maybe 24 hours before. So we're optimizing our sedation. And we're working through the neuro, upper airway, pulmonary, cardiovascular, and GI systems to optimize them for extubation. When we get ready to pull the tube out, I'm going to go through my intubation checklist in the same way I would when I'm getting ready to intubate, just in case this patient needs the breathing tube back. And then extubation failure. I think a good take-home point is if my extubation failure rate is 0%, I'm probably not trying often enough to get that tube out. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Definitely agree with that. Any other thoughts that, that Gina or Alyssa you'd like to leave with our listeners before we wrap things up? I don't think so. I mean, I think this is something that you do on a regular basis in the PICU, right? And oftentimes, you know, particularly as a resident, if this is kind of your first experience, you're like, oh, yeah, there's like not a whole lot to it. But with when you really break it down, there are a lot of things that can impact your ability to be successful at extubating a patient. So um, I think there is a little bit of an art to it, too, particularly in the kids that um, have higher risk and maybe have issues with secretions or kind of chronic respiratory failure. Well, Gita and Alyssa, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of PeteScript. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.